0: listening to The Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by New Ultra, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. My name's Harriet Smith, and I'm a registered dietitian and founder of HRS Communications. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by registered dietitian and the incoming chair of the BDA Sustainable Diets Group, Tanya Hafner, to discuss all things sustainable diets. So I'm going to hand over to Tanya, who will tell us a bit more about herself. Oh, thanks, Harriet. Uh, that's really kind of you and thanks so much for having me.
1: And um, so I am a dietitian, um, a nutritionist. I'm CEO of Nutrilicious, which I founded. It's a communications uh, agency and also CEO of My NutriWeb, uh, a learning hub for on nutrition for health professionals.
0: Thank you very much, Tanya. It's great to have you here with us today. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about what is meant by a sustainable diet, what the future holds for sustainable eating and whether climate change is really an issue for dietitians to be tackling. So without further ado, we're going to delve straight into our quick fire questions to get to know Tanya on a bit more of a personal level. So Tanya, first up, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would that be and why?
1: Oh, it's, um, yeah, I've thought about this. I mean, on the face of it, it's so hard, isn't it? You know, as we have so many glorious places on this wonderful planet. Um, and I do love to travel and have traveled a lot, thankfully, in my lifetime. But um, personally for me, where I am now in my life, you know, I get my energy from being in nature. I get my energy from my family and friends. And at my stage in my life, all that really matters um, are these facets in my life. So I live in North London. I think the only reason I've chosen to, to stay here when I met my husband and settled is because I, I live close to the Heath extension. And so I can go out my door and walk in the woods and it's just and it's just wonderful. And then I have access to London. So I've created my community here, but I have equidistant uh, position in terms of going to Ireland to my extended family and my sister who is in Switzerland so I'm really happy with living where I I live and and find that I'm very
0: privileged really. (laughs) So you're already living in in the your perfect locations which is (laughs) ideal and moving on to our next question what's your favorite season and why? Yeah, I mean, it's
1: it's difficult
0: questions you're asking, um, really, but uh, I would say um, all
1: seasons for me because it reminds me of uh, the cycle of life from birth to death, um, really. And I think we're very lucky in the UK and Ireland where I grew up that we have that. Not every country has all of these different lovely seasons. Um, If I was to choose one of them, uh, forced to do that, I'd probably pick spring you know it represents uh, new hope and life and it reminds you very much of that um cycle of life and you know our connection with nature etc so I'd say
0: that would be my answer <laughs> on that one and of course we're just finishing spring now and heading into the summer season so a very um topical time to be discussing that and then just a more academic focused question what was your best subject when you were at school yes well I was naughty.
1: Well, not naughty. That's not the word. I wasn't very um, focused at school until much later on. Um, Actually, I I couldn't read or write when I was eight. And I only discovered in my 40s that I was dyslexic. Um, But then I got some tremendous help from... A wonderful teacher, and I was in a tiny school in Ireland where, actually, I was the head girl because I was the only girl in my class. There was about eighteen or nineteen children in in primary school, so I got some fantastic attention once I I moved to that school. And then um, in secondary school, I didn't really flourish uh, until much later when I decided to focus. When I was motivated, and I was quite motivated by biology food science um, you know cooking home economics etc so I would say they were my favorite topics really in school eventually
0: yeah I think that will resonate with a lot of dietitians who probably have um, come to love cooking and nutrition through through school and those um, those practicals where you learn to make scones in my case or apple crumble or something like that um, really but that's absolutely Brilliant. So so Tanya, for those who aren't familiar with your business, My NutriWeb, can you begin this episode by just telling us a bit more about what My NutriWeb is all about and what you're aiming to achieve through your business?
1: Sure. Um, so NutriWeb is really an online learning and networking platform. It's a go-to hub um, that provides accredited learning and nutrition for all professionals. So it's dietitians, nutritionists and all other health professionals who are really keen on learning more about nutrition and not just health professionals. It's really we're also serving people across organizations and industry who are working with food and need to know more about nutrition. And it's curated by a team of experts in nutrition and communications. And we really deliver bite-sized learning opportunities. I think that's what's really important now um, for this group uh, of learners, and I would say, hopefully, it's like inviting an expert into your living room every week or on demand as, as you need to get the latest evidence based nutrition, inspiration and, and learning that you need on science to practice. And really, you know, you ask us what our mission is. Um, so I suppose our aim is to support really our community to help others to eat well, which is both for the health and the planet and everything that we do. You know we intertwine sustainability with everything that we do health and planet are aligned for us you know um in, in everything that we do and, and we'll come on i know to talk about that but for us you know sick people on a sick planet is the problem and nutrition um can prevent the biggest killers that we are suffering from um health uh, gets negligible training in terms of uh dietitians and other health professionals, you know, working in food and nutrition, they struggle to keep up to date. Others don't get any training. And we're really on a mission to fill that gap. And if I think about... The words of um, Nelson Mandela and many other great leaders, you know, um, education really is the most powerful weapon that we can use to change the world. So we can change our world quite dramatically uh, for the good with how we eat and how we operate our whole food system. And it's a real privilege to be able to help with this important cog in the wheel of change that we so desperately need to see. Of course, we need a multi-systemed approach, but this is a very important cog in the wheel that needs fixing. And ultimately, that is what we are doing with um, My
0: Web. Thank you very much, Tanya. And obviously, very fitting for this interview. You've got a wonderful background behind you of a, a beautiful planet. And that leads me on to my next question, which is where does your passion for sustainable eating and planetary health come from?
1: Yeah, um, I've been asked this question a lot lately, and I think for me, if it's a like a personal question. I think it all goes back to those early years. It's really incredible, isn't it? When you start thinking about your your life and how influential those early years have been on you in all kinds of ways. I'm not sure if you find that, Harriet, but I, but I certainly do. Um, and one of the books that I discovered in my father's collection of books when I was around 14 or 15 years of age was a phenomenal book called Diet for a Small Planet. Um, by Frances Moore Lappe, and she's still around today. She wrote it for the first time in the 1970s, and it's just phenomenal. She wanted to start a revolution in the way that Americans ate, but it pretty pretty much became uh, the need for a global revolution, which she writes on constantly. She's one of my heroes, and I was just so delighted to hear her speak recently at... um, the British Library. Um, It really totally changed the way I looked at food and it completely blew me away with all of the evidence and the facts that she so carefully collated at that time. And I learned overnight, really, that effectively, if we didn't change the way that we're growing, sourcing our food, eating our food, our planet would actually cease to exist. But remarkably, within this book lays all kinds of solutions, if only governments and society at large were ready and able to listen. And this really opened my eyes at a very um, early age. And I think combined with all of that um of course I had a very good good relationship with my father who was very interested and knowledgeable and connected to our whole ecosystem and was always willing to share his knowledge on this and who did this you know who lived a life to really serve um being very close to nature and that had a big uh impact on me really um so yeah I think that's my long-winded answer to you
0: (laughs) that oh, no that's that's brilliant and, and wonderful to see how you've really um infiltrated all that knowledge and passion through all your career moves and more recently obviously becoming the incoming chair of the bda sustainable diets group so just before we delve into this in more detail i think we need to set the scene by actually defining what is a sustainable diet so can you tell us more what what we mean when we use this term sustainable diet yeah
1: so <laughs> We have an urgent need to promote diets that are healthy and have a low impact um, on our planet. So let's just talk about those figures to start with. You know, our planet is in crisis. You know, we all know this, but let's say this out loud. You know, food and the way that we eat is the single strongest lever to optimise human health and um, environmentally environmental sustainability uh, on planet Earth. However, the food that we're eating is is threatening both ourselves, really, and our planet. And um, by 2050, for example, which is in our lifetime, Harriet, you know, we will need the resources of two planets to support the way that we're currently eating. I mean, that's phenomenal. Um, and population food choices have significant effects on all of the finite environmental resources. So, up to 30% of greenhouse gas emissions globally are linked to agriculture and food production. And the environmental impact of the food that we eat is one of the key changes that we can make to tackle the issue of climate change. So, our food system is, is, is responsible. Um, in in a very large way, you know, for this degradation, and we just can't continue to eat, you know, um, as we're doing. Um, I think uh, in acknowledging, you ask about really then the, you know, what is the definition of this? And I think a lot of people do get hung up on this, but it, it is important, and we now have consensus around this, which is great. And I think then we can move on to actually doing you know, more work on this because there, there has a lot, a lot of energy has gone into this kind of um, definition of it, which has been very important. So I think in acknowledging the existence of the diverging views and discussions on the concepts of what a sustainable diet is and a healthy diet, um, countries requested guidance on this from the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations and the WHO, Um, And these two organisations jointly held an international expert consultation on sustainable healthy diets in 2019 at um, FAO headquarters in Rome. And they agreed on the the guiding principles for what constitutes a healthy diet. And it's really great to have this at a time when sustainability of diets is now higher on the agenda of governments, international organisations, civil society, you know, the private sector, academia, you name it. Um, And this has now become really the core reference point for the guidance on sustainable um, diets. And they have guiding principles around this. Um, So it's much more advanced than when we first looked at this back in Uh, 2010 um, and they have six guiding principles and I just maybe I'll just read out what the aims of sustainable diets are so we can see how rounded this is so in the FAO report it says um, sustainable healthy diets are dietary patterns that promote all dimensions of individuals health and well-being they have a low environmental pressure and impact they're accessible they're affordable they're safe they're equitable and they're culturally acceptable Um, and then it follows with um, these six um, guiding principles but the bottom line is that um, a healthy diet is a sustainable diet and they've considered the nutrition in all of this Um, the guiding principles for example just of interest are um, and I'll share the the document in in the show notes everyone can have a read of this Um, and even if you just read the executive summary because it's a very long report it's terribly important and interesting so the first one is breastfeeding Um, you know, it starts early initiation and exclusive breastfeeding until six months um, and continued breastfeeding until two years and beyond um, with combined appropriate uh, complementary feeding. The next one is a lower. Reliance on livestock products, so you get less beef and dairy. Um, you can have a moderate amount of eggs, um, dairy, poultry, and fish, and really small amounts of meat. We have this shift to plant proteins, including whole grains, beans, and nuts and seeds, and abundance of fruit and vegetables. We have a reduction in prepackaged, highly processed foods, especially those you know high in saturated fat, salt, and sugar. We can include safe and clean drinking water as the fluid of choice because, of course, soft drinks are, you know, have a very high environmental footprint. Um, reducing food loss and waste, minimising the use of antibiotics and hormones in food production, minimising the use of plastics and derivatives in food packaging. That was really important for us as dieticians to be aware of this and to support this all kind of rounded, uh, really, approach to that. So I don't know if you'd come across that um, definition, Harriet. Was that your reference point to date?
0: Yeah, I, I think it definitely overlaps with some of the definitions I've seen. I think, I think um, where the confusion lies is that we've seen lots of different reports in recent years, whether that's the Eat Lancet report, the BDA one blue dot. Um, so having that general consensus of a definition that you've just explained very clearly there is, is very helpful. Um, and as you mentioned, I think we'll definitely put that into the show notes so people can go away and read that in more detail after the episode. Really glad that
1: you mentioned the e answer report and, and 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 the one blue dot because that's something that I constantly <clears throat> you know get asked about. People say they're confused between maybe the three or all the other reports that are now are now out there. But if you look at them, they all hang and you look at the detail, it all hangs from this FAO and they're all aligned with that, even the one blue dot now. You know, so I I think it might be important to go into that. So for guidance on sustainability, you know, the landmark Eid Lancet report came out in 2019 and that landmark report, you know, I would urge everybody else to to read that um, because it was just so rigorous providing a definition of an environmental Sustainable diet, um, you know, convened by the Eat Lancet Commission. And it came from 37 leading scientists from 16 different countries across different sectors. You know, it's very important. But overall, the commission recommends that we double in consumption of healthy foods such as fruit and vegetables, legumes and nuts, and a great and, and a greater than 50% reduction in the global consumption of less healthy foods such as added sugars, red and red meat. And so you can see that fits very nicely with the with the fa with the fao um, data now they were criticized as being very strict But when you actually read it, they say you have to apply that to country specific data and countries need to follow on from that and apply it to their local areas. So the low quantities of meat, for example, that were in that report, like 29 grams of white meat, um, for example, 14 grams per day of red meat. You know, that doesn't necessarily apply to the UK, It doesn't necessarily apply to other countries. And what we have to do is apply Um, the data locally and I think that that's not that's been widely kind of misunderstood if you like um, you mentioned the, the BDA One Blue Dot. I know we're going to go on and talk about that, but that was originally published in um, 2018 and it was ahead of its time, I believe, uh, coming out before the Eid Lancet and the FAO update, but it does align in principle with them. Um, and the BDA One Blue Dot is really, it's less stringent, but it is country specific and it aligns with the latest national Eat Well Guide. And Eat Well Guide, you know, through my conversations with people you know, recently, I've discovered that not many dietitians are all fully aware of how the Eat Well Guide was updated the last time round. And Public Health in England addressed sustainability in its broadest sense within the latest revised Eat Well Guide, while at the same time ensuring that all macro, micronutrients and fiber recommendations were met. And as a result, the Eat Well Guide came out with notable modifications to its predecessor, which was, as we know, the, the Eat Well plate. And the carbon trust analysis um, at the time on this data showed um, a lower environmental impact than the current diet, which is attributed to a number of factors, including you know the increase in the potatoes, the fish, the bread, the vegetables, the fruit, reduced consumption of meat, dairy, rice, pasta, pizza and sweet foods, all of which align really with what was recommended in Eat Lancet and um, in WHO. And actually, it's really interesting to know that um, the Carbon Trust estimates that if individuals actually moved from current eating patterns to the Well Guide, you would see, we would see a 31% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, 17% saving on water use, and 34% reduction in land use. All of this could could actually be achieved. And in addition to that, we'd save 17.9 million disability-adjusted life years over the lifetime of the current population. So I think from... My research and my conversations as well out there on on the streets that that many of us in the profession are not actually um, aware of that. But the the main principles, I would say, is let's not get hung up on the too much of the... you know, the, 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 the detail on it, it's avoiding HFSS foods, reducing uh, red and processed meats, it's moderating dairy, it's increasing plants, it's increasing whole grains. And if we can achieve those principles in what we're doing, that is really the definition of um, the core definition, I would say, of a, of a healthy, sustainable diet.
0: Thank you, Tanya. You've you've put that very succinctly and some staggering statistics that you've shared there. And really, that emphasises why sustainable eating must be on all of our radars as dieticians. But some some sceptics might say, well, that's all good and well. But actually, how realistic is it with the rising cost of living that we're seeing at the moment? to eat sustainably. Um, you know, to give you an example, as, as many people listening will be aware, so often you go to the supermarket and you know buying a punnet of strawberries costs you two pounds, whereas for that same amount you can get more of these high-fat sugar salt foods for, you know, more bang for your buck, as we say. So talk us through your thoughts on how realistic and easy it is for people to eat sustainably and healthily also on a budget.
1: Yeah, it's the, it's the golden question really, isn't it? You know, in, in terms of where we're at at the moment. Um, look, the, the, this is um, relative depending on who you are, you know, where in the world you live, what circumstances you find yourself in and what environment you're surrounded by. That's really king. Um, but in general, it's not easy, you know. And if we consider, if, if we accept the fact that a healthy diet is a sustainable diet, And if we consider um, in the UK that 0.1%, 0.1% of the UK population are achieving all of the Eat Well Guide recommendations, then we have a very long way to go. We have a lot of barriers to
0: overcome, basically. Do you think that we're going to see um, further changes to the Eat Well Guide in the future?
1: Yeah, I I am a believer that the Eat Well Guide needs updating, you know, in terms of the science that we know and what we know about the UK population. But I'm more interested in how we are going to apply the Eat Well Guide, how we're going to address the barriers, how we're going to address behaviour change.
0: And just moving on to those barriers, we've touched upon cost of living, of course. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about some of the um, challenges that people might face in trying to achieve a healthy and sustainable diet?
1: Yeah, so obviously, achieving sustainable eating requires significant behaviour change. You know, when we talk about barriers to behaviour change, we need to be very clear now about whether... We're talking about personal choice versus the environment that we're living in and changing people's environment will have a greater impact than trying to help with individual choice although we need both so behavior is simply too profoundly driven by the factors in the environment rather than in the hearts and the minds and we've got to really get more of a grip on this i think in terms of all the efforts um, that we're putting out there at the moment so To achieve the dramatic transformation that we need to see, we need to utilise all available policy levers. I mean, for me, that's just king. And then we need to intervene at um, multiple levels. And what I mean by this, I think I'm going to bring up an example of um, the Behavioural Insights team. I don't know if you've heard of them, Harriet. Um, They're a fascinating team. Um, I've only really discovered them recently, but um, they're also known as the Nudge Unit, which is a social purpose company originally set up by the government. Um, And they published a report in October 2021, so just the end of last year, called Net Zero. And it's principles for... Successful Behaviour Change and Public Engagement Initiatives, and it's one of the best reads I have had read in a long time. I would highly recommend it, and I'll include it in the show notes. Um, They present um, some key principles for behaviour change through an upstream and downstream model of behaviour change. Now, downstream interventions focus on individuals, so it would be their attitudes, their choices, their actions. um, You know, put Put simply, a campaign asking or imploring citizens to to behave differently. You know, a well known example would be the UK's um, hand, face, space campaign during you know the COVID nineteen pandemic, as well as um, decades of public health campaigns encouraging us to to eat more healthily, five a day, exercise more, etc. And such campaigns can. delivered effectively or not not at all and the weight of evidence really overall when you look at the evidence shows that um information alone is just not adequate you know it's often inadequate to significantly change population behavior and though it's rarely uh, sufficient on its own, such an approach really is necessary to bring the public along. You know, to address critical gaps, to encourage individual efforts where adoption is easy, uh, through clear asks of the public, and also to build um, public support for policy. And I'm not diminishing the value of behavior change communication campaigns. We run behavior change campaigns, you know, in the right place they they work, but only to emphasize that it's, it's limited in terms of the total impact that we are going to have. And these downstream interventions, you know, um, we just have to recognize that by putting the onus for change on the individual choice, we're asking people to swim against the current, basically against the tide, of um prevailing norms in society you know our infrastructure our pricing our hassle in life that continue to make the healthy sustainable choice the hard choice so then we have to look at you know midstream interventions and upstream interventions and I'm really excited to think that dietitians could get a lot more involved in these areas um so midstream interventions would move away from um individual responsibility and indeed seek to edit the context which is our choice environment and this this reflects decades of research decades revealing how our environmental factors shape and constrain our behavior you know of which there's many dimensions you know finance physical etc in other words you know which behaviors are cheap which are convenient which are socially normative um acceptable and good policy examples you know are Are varied, you know, auto-enrollment, for example, into pensions, banning of fast food advertisements near schools would be an example. And we need to modify the features of the river, if you like, so that citizens can swim in the desired direction, uh, in the i.e., in the healthy and sustainable direction. And that's what we really mean by the midstream interventions and bit i would definitely recommend any dietitian reading this document. It's just phenomenal the the amount of research that has been gathered in this is still it's just crazy and brilliant and it's actually very hard to find on the the website so i'll give you the link but bit um outlines different midstream approaches to editing the choice environment like making the desired outcome the default where possible for instance you know if we think about um e-cigarettes, you know, they help people quit traditional cigarettes. Um, and increased availability of plant-based substitutes can reduce the demand for ruminant animals. You know, so you're increasing the choice is what I'm saying. You're not restricting it. Um, and we've seen it time and time again through through research that that, you know, that that works. Um, and timing is also important, you know, uh, in all of this. And since habit is often easier at moments of disruption but arguably after covid and the recent climate disaster timing you know it could well be the right time now for this kind of optimum behavior change and I think this is the prime example of where dietitians can and need to um, get involved and I just wanted to mention just finally that the, the upstream inter- interventions are also critically important and again I can see dietitians getting involved there you know and, and are doing so as well um, more more and more but we need we, we need more people involved. Um, they basically seek to create enabling choice environments as well but directly and at scale. And to act further upstream is to alter really the very um, flow of the economic and social system, carrying everyone really in the right direction with little or no effort. So here we focus on the role of businesses and the functioning of competitive markets and the importance of institutional leadership. So one recognized example of this is the UK Sugar Levy which successfully incentivise widespread reformulation of drinks, helping consumers consume their sugar without actually um, changing purchase choices. So diet change overall, really, I would say like food consumption is a largely automatic habit based behaviour change, um, strongly driven by cues in our physical, social and price environment and evidence shows that altering this choice um, environment is more effective than imploring people to adopt sustainable diets. We've really got to get our heads around this a lot more as a nation. And this suggests that effective diet related policy will lie at the intersection of midstream and upstream principles with the lesser role for downstream methods. And that's where we'll need to be putting more of our energy although not all you know we still need the downstream message is still very very important if citizens are not informed and they're not uh they're they're not they can you see for example citizens got angry um when uh seatbelts for example were you know thought to be out to be brought in um and cigarettes you know uh the policy on cigarettes were changed but when when they ran a campaign to inform citizens um it was then and the law came in it was then accepted so i'm not saying not to have these um downstream they're very important but it's just how you know the percentage of effort that needs to go into us and the percentage of effort i think from dietitians in these areas you know will, will be very important So that's my big kind of um, answer, I think, on the topic. Um, But of course, I know you might also be asking me about individual motivators and barriers as well. Um, Is that something you'd like me to
0: cover or...? Yeah, I I was just thinking, obviously, we've talked there a lot about on a a sort of policy, public health level, what what can be done to help address those barriers. But for people listening who work, you know, one to one with patients and clients, what sort of practical um, methods and tips can they be taking away from you today in terms of helping their patients to overcome those immediate barriers to achieving a sustainable diet? Yeah, I think one
1: blue dot has two amazing um, chapters in it um, relating to this. And then they have a very practical um, toolkit at the end which um, gives lots of examples of swaps, etc., that people can be making in their diet without feeling like their choices also have been taken away. So there's two chapters. One is motivators and opportunities and the other one is barriers. I mean you could you could call the barriers motivators in some cases, but it it outlines lots of different things to be thinking about, you know, There are many, and it's it as 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 we all know with dietitians, it's knowing your audience and what's critical to them, and therefore, where can you start really with influencing, depending on you know who you're really dealing with? So, motivators and opportunities, you know, taste is a huge one, taste perception, um, and making the sustainable diet really the tasty choice. You know, it's often just the perception of, oh my god, more plant-based in my diet. I'm not going to enjoy it, my family's not going to enjoy it, my kids are not going to enjoy it but actually um it's 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 getting over that taste perception you know either through trial or showing foods you know um in the right way or even language There's some really interesting research um around the kind of language that we use you know plant-based might be off-putting for example for some groups whereas if you say change the language and they, we've, there's been research on menus for example, say should, positioning the plant-based option within um, the normal menu rather than to the side and changing the description of that. So for example, um, slow roasted caramelized zucchini bites sounds much more delicious um, and enticing versus just uh, roasted zucchini. Um, and, And we've seen that this change in the language and the change in the positioning in the menu has actually changed uptake of more plant-based foods. So, you know, it's just really thinking about those kind of common barriers. You know, another one obviously is food price. It's affecting everybody and it's just helping patients, you know, and showing them, often showing them that, you know, it can be cheaper. Yeah, obviously depending on the environment that they're living in and where they can supply those foods. But maybe that's what we need to concentrate with one particular group. Another group it might be um, health. Health might be the motivating factor. Um, to actually eat a sustainable diet or likewise sustainable diets might be the motivating factor to get somebody to improve, you know, improve their health. Um, There's other motivators like animal welfare. You know, many people are are turning to more of a plant-based diet, more of a sustainable diet as well for ethical reasons, and that can be a driver. But that's very complex. I think we did allude to that in dot. I think it should be part and parcel of our food system, but we're not there yet. And often with some of the more sustainable foods, they may not have the best animal welfare practices. So it's, it can get can get complex and we need to get informed about that, you know, if that's relevant to the groups that we are um, talking about um. And I think, um, you know, convenience and food culture as well, you know, is incredibly important. If we're not providing the tools that's relevant to the cultures that we're, you know, talking to, that that's really important. And love to see that actually evolve um, within One Blue Dot. But I would say just in the interest of time, I would just say, read that. I think they're, they're two very good chapters that can trigger ways of helping patients with sustainable diets.
0: Thank you, Tanya. We'll certainly link to that in the show notes. And just, again, coming back to the the role of dietitians specifically in helping people to achieve a more sustainable diet. um, We're hearing this new term of sustainable dietitians. Can you tell us a bit more about um, what this role entails? um, Who do they tend to work with and what sort of settings do they tend to work in?
1: Yeah, um, look... I think is it a new is it a new one a uh, sustainable diet, dietitian it, it, it relatively is um and I think we're beginning to see some jobs coming up now which are entitled uh, or titled sustainable dietitian, but it they're very few and far between. I saw one the other day in government, I was absolutely thrilled to see that. We do see it more um, in industry now. You know, there are dietitians moving across to become um, sustainable experts uh, within the industry sector and retail. Um, I also saw another one in public health England so it's beginning to happen Um, you know and I think really all dietitians I would say um, should be sustainable dietitians we should not be be talking about food and health without really thinking about um, sustainability and I think we need to get all upskilled in this area to really understand it and I don't think it's difficult um you know i got approached by one um hospital saying we're running um you know training days for all of the staff but we have no skill set internally um on sustainable diets can you find somebody who will who will come and do that now i think it's incumbent upon that department to actually have somebody in the department or all the dietitians to get upskilled on sustainable diets and by doing that you can um learn about one blue dot on the BDA website they also have um, through this toolkit now uh, a set of slides with notes which will help you learn about it and lots of links to all the important um, you know uh, papers to read about it and I think once you've got those basics you as a dietitian you're already trained to apply that to the group that you're working in and I can only give you one example you know my my very good colleague Elfie Medici you know she has made herself become a sustainable dietitian through self-learning. And she was very much a lead author then on the um, One Blue Dot paper uh, with the science. And now she is um, training chefs in the Cordon Bleu um, Cookery School and applying all of that knowledge. And that's not by going on a degree you know, around sustainable diets, it's through kind of self-learning. And we, I believe we have the skill set, you know, to apply it. But if if anybody wants to go and do even further learning, I would suggest, um, you know, if you want to do a degree in it or a master's, you know, I I would strongly recommend um, the Institute of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in London, because they just do phenomenal, you know, courses in that area. But I don't think It's a need for every dietitian, but every dietitian needs to get upskilled and can do so by beginning really with one blue dot.
0: Tanya, I'm just wondering, do you think that the current dietetic syllabus has a big enough emphasis on sustainable diets or is that something that you feel needs more work?
1: It does need more work as far as I know, and it's a a question I do want to um, ask as a sort of incoming chair is, is it it going to be based on the syllabus or, you know, is, is it on there yet? I don't believe it is. It wasn't on there Six months ago, I believe, when I asked, um, but I know that there's a move from many tutors and many courses to actually include it um, anyway, because we've been approached to do talks. You know, I did one. I did one last week, for example. Um, so I, I think it, it's a really important question. I think it should be on the syllabus. Um, and I think, you know, what 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 Wambu Dot did was create um, a slide deck for tutors to use. Um, But absolutely, I think it should be compulsory. It's very difficult. There's so much on the curriculum. You know, I do get it for those that are creating the curriculum. It's very hard. You have to decide what to exclude rather than what to include. Um, But it's so critical, isn't it, you know, to our survival now. So I think it should be compulsory.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that brings us on to my next question, which is about your incoming chair of the BDA Sustainable Diets group role. Um, You obviously mentioned there about wanting to embed it more into the curriculum. Can you can you just tell us a bit more about what the group is and what your other ambitions are with moving the group forward? Yeah so the BDA Sustainable Sustainable Diets
1: Group basically this uh, represents um registered dietitians with a specialist role or interest in sustainable diets and really The aims of this group are to act really as a forum for sharing information, also to develop um, evidence-based practice and contribution to develop to the national guidelines within the areas of sustainable diets. I think the group also wants to act as a voice for professional expertise and raise the profile of dietitians working in sustainability and encourage and enable really CPD uh, within this um, membership. Um, it's a very new group, I have to say. Um, I think uh, Ruth Harvey, who has been the chair, has done an awful lot of fantastic work in setting this up in a very short space of time. Um, and she's she's leaving at the end of this month and I'm um, taking over. So I'm literally just shadowing at the moment. Um, so you asked me what are my um, aspirations. I would say next steps um, for me... And obviously, I've got to consult with the the, the, the committee. Um, is that I'd like to um, help with networking, I think, and sharing the expertise that is across the membership. And so I think there are some fantastic people out there doing stuff and maybe not having access to others who are doing. Other things that could support them, um, and I think what, what I'd like to see is identifying the dietitians within the membership that have different skill sets, so that we can also call upon them to um, help other organisations. Um, for example, I think that that's
0: really important. Brilliant! And for for those listening that are interested in getting involved, um, we can certainly link to the the group in the show notes as well. I imagine you're always looking for new members. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Just moving back to the BDA's One Blue Dot, which we've talked about quite a bit, and obviously you've been very closely involved with working on this. um, And in fact, you received a role of honour from the BDA for your hard work with the toolkit. Um, You've you've already explained to us a bit about what the the One Blue Dot initiative is. But could you tell us more about the kind of broader um, Broader goals of what it hopes to achieve, and indeed, what success has it already had since it launched a few years ago?
1: Okay, so its goals and and what it achieved, and maybe even how it came about, might be interesting. So it It was finally launched back in uh, 2018 after a lot of hard work, I have to say, by an amazing uh, working party. And really, prior to this, the BDA had a sustainable policy, but it wasn't um, really fit for purpose at the time and needed to be addressed. And I was just really lucky enough to start conversations with the BDA and ask ask this question, uh, what can we do as dietitians and nutritionists so that we can be driving sustainability. How can we start doing this more with the BDA? And this is when uh, One Blue Dot from the BDA was born. And this was a very exciting project um, to work on. And, It was very interesting because I I personally envisaged at the time, and I think Joe Lewis did as well at the BDA, who was very heavily involved in this. We envisaged that we would be developing inspirational tools and resources for dietitians and nutritionists to share on really with um, members of the public. But we discovered through a lot of um, qualitative and quantitative work um, that we did with dietitians that they first needed really to be convinced of the science behind sustainable eating. Um, The membership had a lot of reservations, this is 2018, and um, concerns around the nutrition of sustainable uh, eating, and that first needed addressing, and we still get that today for people who are new to the subject. You know, so it's so fantastic that we've drawn together all of that science, um, that considers the nutritional quality of a sustainable diet. You know, and what it what it really means. That that's all there now for dietitians to ask the many important questions. You know, that 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 are being um, asked. Um, so it's very exciting to be involved in that and through you ask about the success of it so through follow on surveys we've seen a change in awareness in the understanding of sustainable diets through dietitians and we've seen many other organizations also using um, the toolkit so I think it's had a great impact from from that perspective but I think next up the science, of course, needs updating. Uh, that will continually need updating. And that may be more about, in my view, um, but it's only my personal view, more about signposting, um, given the other reports that have come out around this, where we have great you know, science collated. I think for the BDA, and I think it's more important um, now to think about tools that dietitians will need to implement um, sustainable diets in whatever area of practice that they're, that they're working in. I think that's where the magic is gonna happen next.
0: Absolutely. And for, for people who are interested in potentially being involved with the continuing work on the One Blue Dot initiative, is that something that is managed by the sustainable diets group of the BDA? Yeah, I think they're guardians of it um, from my understanding
1: now. Um, and we'll work hand in hand with the BDA office to come to solutions to, to doing that. You know, um, of course, when you're doing in-depth scientific reviews like that, it's very costly. There has to be, you know, funding set aside for that and planning. And it's certainly something that the group I know is asking about
0: um, at the moment. So, yeah. Watch this space. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Whilst we're we're talking about public health and policy, the National Food Strategy is set to really move the dial on eating more sustainably. Can you tell us a bit more about what this entails? Well, it would be a dream come true if the National
1: Food Strategy would move the dial on sustainability. Um, It was a tremendous piece of work, you know, when it came out. I actually didn't know whether I was going to to laugh or cry because it was so good. It was the best, uh, one of the best pieces of of reviews of our food system that we've had, obviously, since the war, you know, so so from that point of view, it's very, very commendable. Um, However, um, the recommendations in my view, and again, it's just my personal view, I I felt that we were let down. Um, I don't think (coughs) that they were, (coughs) excuse me, I don't think that they were as brave um, as they should have been, Um, but moreover, really we don't have a government anyway um, that is listening to it, and we don't know whether you know these recommendations are going to be taken up i think it was hugely gut-wrenching to hear the government renege on the ban of hfss promotion you know a few weeks ago um you know governments um that are approving the hundred The build of hundreds of more fast food outlets, including, you know, in the worst deprived areas is just soul destroying. So they're just not focusing on what the job that really needs to be done around, you know, our food system. And in my mind, you know, go back to what I said earlier, but I think this is just so incredibly important. We need strong policy and we need it yesterday and in my view we need a food minister to lead on joining the dots across all the different government departments that's responsible um for food and um, to get everyone moving with urgency and i need and, and it needs radical policy action for both retail industry and and agriculture so i think it's watched this space but i think unfortunately it will depend
0: on um the government um that, that's in power at the time let's see so tanya you've you've already touched on this in previous answers but as we come to the end of this episode i'm really keen to hear your thoughts on what the future holds for sustainable diets over the next five years let's say
1: yeah it's it's such an interesting question you know if we people are saying you know well you asked earlier we'll eat well change does it need to change we know canada for example have taken dairy off the plate you know already you know it's it's going to be really interesting to see and i think the bottom line for me is you know what policy does and 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 that will have the greatest impact but you know we're already experiencing the impact of climate change and we cannot change you know the environment without changing how we eat we're seeing water shortages, we're seeing more deaths from rising heat. We've got more extreme weather conditions, you know, um, with related deaths, you know, and there's like, there's some. let's talk about some of the stats. There's 3.5 billion people, highly vulnerable to climate impacts and half the world's population suffers severe water shortages at some point in each year. One in three people are exposed to deadly heat stress. And this is projected to increase, you know, to 50 to 70 percent by the end of the century. You know, and half a million people are at risk of serious flooding every year and a billion living on the coast will be exposed to this now by 2050. These are stark realities. We will have to move to stricter guidance. And as I said, Canada has already done this with no dairy on the plate. But, I, you know, I'm more interested in what government and what we can do to, to get government to act on policy um, for real impact.
0: Thank you very much, Tanya. And just my final question to you. What would be your main message for people to take away from this episode today?
1: I think, you know, if you are not, um, if you've not swatted up on sustainable diets and the science of that, I would say read one blue dot. I would say after that, read Eat Lancet and the FAO report. And I think you'll be totally inspired about what you can do in practice. And everything that you do every day, when you're talking about a healthy healthy diets, you're, you're impacting on sustainable eating. But you can use that message and you can use all the knowledge around that to have an even greater impact, you know, with with what you're doing in your work. And if you're really interested in this subject area, then, you know, approach us on the committee, get involved in the BDA Sustainable um, Diets Group. We'd love to see you and we'd love to, you know, hear about what you're doing and what your ideas are um, too.
0: Wonderful. Well, best of luck, Tanya, when you um, take on your new role of chair of the Sustainable Diets Group. It sounds really, really exciting opportunity for you. And thank you again for your time today and for sharing your invaluable knowledge and experience with us. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Harriet. It's been lovely chatting to you. A huge thank you to New Ultra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoy listening to The Dietitian Cafe, please do consider subscribing and leaving a review or five-star rating so that we can reach even more health professionals. You can follow New Ultra on social media at New Outra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you for listening and our next episode will be out soon.